The following audio is recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. I said this last week, but we're stepping into a particularly difficult portion of Scripture this morning. Uh, And when I say difficult, it's difficult for a a, a few reasons. Uh, First of all, it's in some ways just difficult to interpret. We ask, like, we read this and we just say, now what does this text mean? We have a text that is a difficult one to interpret. Number two, it's difficult maybe in how do we apply a text like this? Like, what do we do with this, right? Um, But here's the thing. I want to reiterate this again. We're here at a text that is also difficult because it confronts a very sensitive and a very hot-button issue within our culture. Our culture, I said this last week, is all about gender, all about it. Uh, It's probably the single most hot, hot button that we have, um, gender identity, gender confusion, binary, non-binary, transgender, gender fluidity. We have a lot of terms that I could just throw out here. The, the point is it, is, it is a very popular topic. Um, you, the, you look at our culture today and gender is seen as some kind of social contra, uh, construct that we put together, even separating gender from biological sex. I mean, this is the th- these are the things that we are seeing and, and working through in our culture today. And as if that's not enough, by the way, um, we also have a modern push against big ideas such as uh, patriarchy. Oppression, Um, we have the feminist movement and all of its strains and all of its variations. So listen, the deck is stacked when we come to a text like this. And I want to be really clear up front. Some of this pushback that we have in our culture might be warranted. I want to say this up front. Um, Abusive and misapplied patriarchy is neither biblical nor is it good. Um, Overly aggressive understandings of gender roles and hyper-masculinity, hyper-femininity. These things aren't helpful. In most cases, they're just downright hurtful. So some of this pushback is a positive thing, and it's warranted if we are going to be a people of this and want to get back to what the Word of God says about how he's created us to be in his image. Um, but because all of this, when we get to a text like this that speaks to an issue like uh, gender in God's distinct roles for, for men and women, we're bound for a bit of a like collision here. Like we're bound for it, uh, no matter what we do. And so difficult to interpret, sure. Difficult to imply, apply, sure. But this one's also difficult because of just the content and how it speaks to a hot button issue. Um, and with this church, I also want to point out the fact that um, have you noticed just how quickly our culture is moving on some of these things too. I think it's warranted to say this because what is wrong one day will be right the next day. What is right one day will be wrong the next day. And the people who are kind of progressive and pushing the agenda one day, the next day are passed up and are now old-fashioned. Like, it's just moving quick. It's moving quick. And it's, it's hard to keep up. But I bring this up because in a culture that's moving fast and believing that it's moving forward in progress... I got to tell you, this right here, scripture, is an absolute offense, regardless 
to say that there is an eternal, unchanging design and truth that God has given us is not only difficult to take, it is downright offensive and absurd. And so, yes, this text is difficult, um, but here we go. We're dealing with, we're building on something we started last week. I want to state it again right up from the beginning. We're going to pick up on a fundamental idea that we're going to come back to again and again, okay? And that is that we believe, we hold to the fact that Scripture teaches the sanctity of all human life. Both male, both male and female, equally as image bearers of God, equal in worth, in value, and in dignity. We believe also that in the glorious and good plan of God, that God has created men and women distinctly and complementary to each other in order to bring him glory and to promote human flourishing in both the church and in the home. We believe this. We're building off this. And there is a, a beauty in God's plan and in God's design for his church as both men and women come together to grow together in Christ. So having said that, last week as we looked at the first part of this text, let me catch us up here. Paul gave us his desire for men to be men of prayer in the church. Men of prayer. Not quarreling or arguing or conflicts or debates no, but men of prayer who would lead out our church and lead out our congregation in prayer. Then Paul gave his desire for women in the church to adorn themselves with what is both modest and respectable clothing, but also adorn themselves with good works. We saw that last week. And last week we talked about the beauty of those coming together in the church Men and women coming together under scripture to live this out for the glory of God, to make much of Christ in the church. And so this week, we're going to continue in this text, and we're going to look at two big things. Number one, teaching in the church. Number two, authority in the church. Teaching and authority. So having said that, let's read our text, then we'll pray together, and we will walk our way through this text. All right? I, I, this doesn't work, so you'll trust me. Follow with me in your Bibles. Here we go. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray together. God, this morning um, we want to come to your text with open hands and open hearts. And we ask that you would help us as we unpack this together. More than anything else, our one goal this morning is to hear from you through your word. We want to hear, hear clearly so that we're able to obey your word. Our desire as a church is to be faithful to your word because in this world, as culture goes up and down and side to side, you are faithful. Your word is faithful. It is true. It is it's our stronghold. Your word is our joy. 
God, would you speak through your word this morning? In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. All right. Hey, it works. Okay. Um, As we look at this text, I want us to uh, recognize that this text is both cultural and timeless. Um, It is cultural in the sense that it was given to a specific culture at a specific time, and we are here in a specific culture reading this. It's cultural. It's also timeless in in that there are truths here that transcend any culture, any and every culture, truths that are tied, as we will see in our text, to creation that apply to our culture today, just like any other culture, just as much as it applied to the first century culture. So verse 11 is both a powerfully cultural and timeless truth. But I got to say, first of all, as we read through verse, read verse 11 alone, through our modern lenses, it seems off, doesn't it? Borderline offensive. Let's, let's look at this. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Are you kidding me? After years and years of the struggle for equality, feminism, and all of its forms, this verse can sound so offensive. Um, And I want to point out something really important. It would have been just as offensive back then as it is for you today, only for the opposite reason. Let me point this out. What Paul is saying here was completely countercultural to the ancient world. Um, especially the first century religious world. Paul here is commanding women to learn. That would have been a massive statement in the first century. There's many segments of Judaism that that would have been downright sinful for women to be present in the teaching and learning of Scripture. That was so countercultural back then. And it's countercultural for us today. Only for the opposite reasons. Um, It's funny how culture moves. Um, This is one of those cultural elements, though, of this text. And depending on which culture you find yourself, you have this different background in response to the statement. But regardless of the culture, there's also a timeless truth here. In fact, there are two, and this scripture touches on two distinct commands two times. Um, In these commands, here, here, here it is. The scripture deals with the teaching ministry of the church and the spiritual authority in the church. These two commands dealing with the teaching ministry of the church and the spiritual authority of the church. And we'll look at each of these in turn because they're connected to each other. If you look at our text in verses 11 and 12, you're going to see both of these things stated first in the positive and second in the negative. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly. This is a positive command, meaning do this, dealing with the teaching ministry of the church. Learn quietly in the teaching ministry of the church. Second, with all submissiveness. This is the positive command, do this, dealing with the spiritual authority in the church. So first statement, teaching ministry. Second statement, spiritual authority. Then, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach. We're right back to the teaching ministry of the church, only this time it is stated not in the positive, but in the negative. Do not. 
followed then, or to exercise authority over a man. Again, we're back to authority, no authority, stated in the negative. So, and then finally, it says she is to remain quiet. This returns to the first command, kind of a bookend here. So Paul says, in the area of the teaching ministry of the church, women are to learn, not teach. In the area of spiritual authority in the church, women are to submit and not exercise authority. Okay, we're going to pause here, and we are going to unpack what this does and does not mean. And as we walk through this, I, I, I want to just say this up front. I fully realize that there are churches who will see this and interpret this differently than I see Scripture. Um, as we walk through this, we fully realize that there are commentators and biblical scholars that see this differently uh, than each other. We understand that. But here's the thing, church. We can't and we shouldn't avoid tough stuff. One of my favorite things about teaching the Bible this way and walking through books of the Bible is we don't ignore these things. We walk through them. I think it's by his grace we step into this with humility and, and we want to be faithful and consistent with what scripture teaches and so we walk through this. And so as we have wrestled with this and unpacked this um, and we've examined scripture in light of this text, I want to make one broad clarification and then we're going to get into this text and I want to make three specific clarifications from this text. Okay, let's start with a broad one. Um, I'm going to give you two big bucket terms. These big bucket terms are not found in the pages of Scripture, but they are helpful because it shows how we, the lens that we are looking at this Scripture through. And, and I want to give you these two terms and then explain where we are as a church. Big, nasty terms. Here we go. You can't see that. That's not egalitarian. There's an E there. Egalitarianism. Egalitarianism. This is the belief that not only are all people equal before God in their personhood, but there are no gender-based limitations on what functions or roles each gender can fulfill in the home and in the church. Many would say from this viewpoint, they would add in the society as well. So home, church, and society. Um, in egalitarianism... There is no difference between genders. They still hold that there are two genders, but there's no difference in the roles and the function that these two genders have. There's no difference in the home between the, the function of the husband and the function of the wife. There's no difference in the church in terms of pastors and uh, elders. There's no difference. According to this view, because of Christ, gender distinctions are gone. I don't know why that sound came to my mind for this, but gone, okay? And uh, a lot will, will point to, um, it picks and chooses. There we go. Okay, a lot will point to this text in looking at this. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We're going to come back to this text, but this is egalitarianism. Big bucket number one, all right? Let's go to big bucket number two, complementarianism. Even longer, nastier word. Here we go. Complementarianism is the belief that all people are equal before God in their personhood. Yay and amen. 
And there are gender-based limitations on what functions or roles each gender can fulfill in the home and in the church. And to be fair, many will add in society as well. I won't spend much time with this because we got a lot to cover in this text. Um, But we here at Stone Oak Bible Church are a complementarian church. What this means is, is when we look at Scripture, we believe that what Scripture teaches is that two things are simultaneously true. On this hand, truth number one, men and women are created equally as image bearers of, of God, equal in terms of salvation and sanctification. In fact, I, I mentioned Galatians, that text, there is now no male or female. We would say yes and amen. Through Christ and salvation, there is no distinction. We are one. We are equal. There is no Jew, no Gentile, male, female, no slave, nor free. We are one in Jesus. We are equal in terms of our being image bearers and our salvation, and we're equally gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve the church. That's true. And at the same time, we hold, and we believe that Scripture teaches that men and women are also given distinct and complementary roles that complement each other, meant to complement each other for the glory of God and for the good of our homes and our churches. We believe both of these things are true at the same time in Scripture. And so we are a complementarian church. And so what we see in Scripture in texts like this, um, and in texts like we're going to walk through in chapter 3, by the way, that's coming, um, we see as a church, we want to take God's word as his word, and put it to practice in the best way that we can. And so we're, we're, we're seeing this, this, this scripture from this place, and from that place, okay, I want to give three more very speci- specific clarifications as we look at our text. So back to our text. I gave you the big buckets. Let's jump back in to our text this morning. First of all, this is not... Hear me, this is not a command to absolute silence for women in the church. Clarification number one. In other words, this is not a command that covers every single element of church life and aspects of corporate worship. Instead here, and I'll say this again, this is a command specifically dealing with the teaching ministry of the church. We see this not only here in 1 Timothy, we see this in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, specifically 1 Corinthians 11 and 14. And we see this as a command that goes directly with the teaching ministry of the church as led out by the elders of the church, which we are about to step into in the very next verses in chapter 3. And so because of this, we believe it is good and it is godly for women to be an active part of the church body for the glory of God. Um, We believe women have been gifted with spiritual gifts within the church to bless the church, to minister to the body. This is why here at Stone Oak Bible, you're going to see women. You're going to see women using their gifts from singing of hymns and songs to the reading scripture to praying together as we gather. We're going to see women doing these things. These elements of our church are not the teaching ministry of the church. And in this 
that is in view by this scripture um, and under the responsibility of the elders. So women um, participating in this is both good and beautiful and glorifying to God and at the same time, church, this is why here at Stone Oak Bible Church, we, we don't have women elders. We don't. Um, it's not because women are less gifted. It is not because we are, they are less intelligent or less godly. It's not because we're lacking godly women here at Stone Oak Bible Church. No. It's because we believe that in Scripture, God gives us his glorious design for us to function together. We see this pattern, this command given to us, and it's this complementary command and design. We're going to see this way more clearly, by the way, um, as we get into 1 Timothy chapter 3. There's no coincidence that this text comes right before 1 Timothy chapter 3. But what we see, what we believe, is that just as husbands should love and lead and give themselves for their wives at home, uh, Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, we believe that in the church men should be men of prayer that should love and lead and give themselves for the congregation in the church and that qualified men, called men, should serve as elders and deacons, as we see in this text. And so we believe this is good and in God's complementary design for us. And in this, we believe just as wives should love and respect and submit to their husbands in the home, again, Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, we believe that women should learn and submit to spiritual authority in the church. And we believe that this is good and this is beautiful for the church to function and thrive the way God has given us. Now, I know that that sounds so archaic and crazy to our modern ears. I promise you it's not meant to be heavy-handed, patriarchy. In fact, church, it is the exact opposite. This is God's beautiful design for us, for human flourishing in both the home and the church. So that's number one. This is not a command to absolute silence in the church. Clarification number two is very similar to this one. This is also not a command against all types of teaching for our women in our church. Um, like it or not, by the way, uh, you are teaching. There's no getting around that. Um, parenting is teaching. Living in community is teaching. Um, you are teaching in some way, shape, or form. In fact, we see in other places of Scripture that women are specifically called to teach. Um, in fact, in Titus, Paul himself says, says this. I'm going to hopefully put it. Yep, there we go. Older women, he says, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slander, slaves to too much wine. But what? They are to teach what is good. And so train young women to love their husbands and children, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So it's clear that women are to engage in some forms of teaching for the glory of God in the church. We also see in Acts 18 when Priscilla and Aquila pull Apollos to the side and clearly teach him the word of God and correct him in the truth of the word of God. This text, our text, is not a command against all kinds of teaching 
It's a command for a very specific kind of teaching. And I will come back to it again. This is a reference to the teaching ministry of the church. In other words, this is a call to protect the doctrine of the church. This is a call to protect, we never call this a pulpit. Most of the time I use a table, but I'm glad it's a pulpit today. To protect the pulpit, if you will. Um, To protect the preaching ministry of the church. This is a call to protect what is being taught at the church. In other words, this is a specific reference to the work and responsibility of the elders. So here at Stone Oak, we believe that the preaching ministry of the church is the responsibility of the elders of the church. Um, it always has been. This is why preaching here is done by our pastors or our elders. Um, or occasionally we're going to have some elders from other churches coming or church planters, but um, they're faithful elders at their church. And so that's, that's who preaches here. This is why communion is led out by our elders. This is why we do these things. There are, there are also, though, so many other forms of teaching that happen here at our church from what is happening right now with our kids, what happens with our students, our studies that we have, and to some degree, even our community groups. Um, in all of these cases, falls under the authority, the spiritual authority and direction of our elders, and as such, we believe Scripture is clear that as elders, we will give an account for this. That's what we're talking about with spiritual authority. That's what we're talking about with the teaching ministry of the church. So what's in view here in this scripture, it's not a command against all teaching. This is a command regarding the teaching ministry of the church. And uh, in this scripture and in other scriptures like it, um, Paul is, is, what he's saying here is that it is, God's revealed and beautiful plan of God for his church, that women should not engage in the teaching ministry of the church, but that is the responsibility and the calling of the elders of that church. And again, I want to be doubly clear. I've said this once, but I think it's important to say this again. It's not because women are less gifted, less godly, specifically as a teacher. I mean, come on. Women are awesome teachers. Um, I have no doubt that there are so many women who are so much more gifted as a teacher than I am. So much more. No doubt about this. So it's not about women being less gifted or less godly or a lack of gifted and godly women in our congregation. That's not true at all. It's because we have the word of God that gives us God's glorious plan and design this pattern given to us, and we believe it's this complementary pattern in design. So we, we see this not as a command to absolute silence for women in the church, but for the teaching ministry in the church, women are called to be learners. We also do not see this as a prohibition against teach, women teaching at all. Um, again, this is a reference specifically to the teaching ministry of the church. I want to make clarification number three, then we'll bring it together and, and, and see how this comes together. Clarification number three, this is also not a command against all authority in the church. Um, specifically, this is a reference to the spiritual authority in the church, the spiritual authority that we're about to see in chapter three. I keep coming back there, but it's important to keep that in view. I'll say it like this. You know this, but I'm just going to say it. 
Um, anyway, there is a difference between operational and administrative authority and spiritual authority in the life of a church. There's a difference between women organizing, administrating, leading, using those gifts of leadership within the church. There's a difference between that and the spiritual authority in the church. This is why we have women on our staff here at Stone Oak Bible Church. Um, we have women leaders. We have women who are serving in our teams, and yet our elders and our deacons are men. In this, we believe that we're able to see God's plan just play out in the life of the church, put it in action here at our church. So let me put this back on the screen. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So let's go to these clarifications again. Number one, this is not a command for absolute silence for women in the body of Christ. This is a command dealing with the preaching and teaching and overseeing of the preaching and teaching ministry in the church. Clarification number two, this is not a command against all types of authority for a woman in the body of Christ. This is a command dealing with the spiritual authority in the church as seen in the office of elder. This is Paul's heart here as he puts this before us. This is Paul's desire. It's this complementary vision of the church where men and women equal before the Lord come together in complementary roles for the glory of God and for the flourishing of the church. Now, one of the questions that I get asked all the time with this text and with texts like it is, isn't this a cultural issue? And I wanna speak to this. Isn't this a cultural issue? This is 2023, are you kidding me? Uh, Paul speaking to the early church who was a part of the ancient culture. Isn't this command a cultural command? Well, verses 13 and 14 speak to that directly. Paul gives us here two reasons for this command, and neither one of them are connected to our culture. In fact, both of them are tied to the creation account in Genesis. It goes way back. In other words, this command is pre-cultural. So, Let's look at this text, verse 13. For, listen, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Paul connects here the command in this church to two things. First, creation order, the order of creation, and second, to the fall in Genesis 3. And I want to take these in order. Uh, first one, verse 13, creation order. Paul gives this command to the church. It says, in the area of the teaching ministry of the church, women are to learn and not teach. And in the area of spiritual authority in the church, women are to submit and not to exercise authority. Why? Why? Well, because. Four in this. Four. Adam was formed first, then Eve. I want you to think about this like the Old Testament principle of the firstborn. We still have this today, but it was prominent in the Old Testament as well, where you see the firstborn is given special rights and privileges in the family for no other reason but because that's the firstborn. Firstborn. Uh, firstborn of the family. Here, Paul is connecting back to this principle, this firstborn principle, and saying Adam was created first, like a firstborn, then Eve. The other thing I want to point out here, creation 
order is really important in this text because if you look back at Genesis, it was Adam who was given the role and responsibility and the authority to name the animals as the firstborn, right? Um, A commentator says this really well. Um, The order is significant because it indicates Adam's position as the one who names, tames, and protects. And Eve's position as the one who nurtures, helps, and supports. And so here, Paul connects this command back to the very order of creation. Connecting it back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 being pre-cultural. All right? And second, Paul is also going to connect this command not only to Genesis 1 and 2, but he's going to connect it to Genesis 3 in the fall. Let's look at verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Okay, Uh, first of all, I want to say this very clearly here. Um, Women, by their nature, are not more easily deceived than men. You don't have to be alive long enough to realize that gullibility is not a gender-based problem. Okay, we have some gullible men who can be so easily deceived. And we have some gullible women who can be easily deceived. So gullibility here, not a respecter of gender. Um, So if that's not it, what is going on here? What is Paul saying here? Well, back in the garden, God was clear with the man and woman. He gave them, gave Adam and Eve roles and responsibilities in the garden. And here in this moment, in the garden, when Eve was tempted, here's what we see. We see the roles that God gave Adam and Eve were turned on their heads in the garden. Follow with me here. Adam was supposed to be the head, responsible for leading, accountable and active, present. But what happened? Well, Adam abdicated his role. He was absent. If not absent, he was at the very least passive. And in that leadership void, Eve steps in. Okay, so in that moment, God's design and plan was flipped on its head. The complementary design for men and women was rejected. And in this moment, Adam and Eve chose to disobey and sin enters the world. And so in this, there's this subtle statement here that Paul is making that seems to be underscoring the difference between the two guilty people in Genesis 3. I want to be very clear, they're both guilty, okay? Both guilty. But Paul is making the statement here, Adam sinned openly as the head, whereas Eve was deceived, leading them both into sin. So what's Paul doing here? Paul is showing us that back in the garden, back in Genesis 3, as Adam and Eve chose sin, the fall was grounded in, men's, in, in men and women's disregard for God's design for them, complementary design in the garden. It was disregarded, and it led to a heap of mess. That's my words, not, a, not the theological word for it. And, and Paul gives this command and says, in the area of the teaching ministry of the church, women are to learn and not teach. In the area of spiritual authority in the church, women are to submit and not to exercise authority. And so what's clear from verses 13 and 14 is this command is not rooted in first century culture. It's not rooted in the church of Ephesus. No, this command was pre-cultural and connected to 
the account we have in Genesis 1 through 3. And so, in other words, this complementary design for men and women is connected to our foundational beginnings in Genesis 1 through 3, not to the culture of which we are a part. And with that, there's one more, one more verse, and honestly, this is the most difficult one to interpret. Um, this one has caused commentators so much pain and angst and ink. Volumes have been written about this one. Uh, and there are so many different possibilities and interpretations for this text. We could have spent our entire morning on this one, just going over all the different possibilities, but I don't think that would be all that fruitful. And so... Um, because again, I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. So rather than doing that, um, rather than working through all the various options, I want to do three things, okay? Number one, I want to tell you just up front, this one's tough. So if you read this and were like, oh, what is that? You're not alone. This one's tough. Number two, I want to remind you of an important principle, that when you get to a difficult text, let, try your best to let Scripture help you. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Um, so how can other texts that are maybe a little less difficult and more clear, uh, how can they help shed some light on a difficult one? As we said last week, Scripture is inerrant, without error. But I don't want you to hear me wrong. That doesn't mean your interpretation of it is without error. So we need to wrestle with this. We need to let Scripture speak to Scripture and help us in this. So that's number two. Number three, the last thing I want to do, is I want to, after studying this text, chewing on it for a long time, I knew this one was coming. I've been chewing for a long time. Um, looking at these texts, praying through this, I want to give you the interpretation I think that fits the best and why. So instead of giving you options, 57 options, I'm going to tell you why I think this one is the best one. And if you want to talk more, you can email me at Craig at Stone Oak Bible Church. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Craig's our executive, you don't know. He's teaching in our kids, so don't tell him I said that. Okay, um, <laughs> verse 15, here we go. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay, in order to understand this, I think it is so important that we go back to Genesis. Paul has already grounded us in the creation order of Genesis 1 and 2. Then Paul has grounded us in the fall, Genesis 3. Now, I believe what he's doing here is taking us to the, toward the end of Genesis. As God responds to Adam and Eve's sin. If you remember what happens in Genesis 3. After they ate the fruit, God asked, you know, where'd you go, Adam? Where are you? And, and they're hiding. Then he asked, did you eat the fruit? And in this moment, Adam, just such a bonehead sometimes when you read this, it's just crazy. Uh, continuing with the theme of just complete abdication of his leadership and headship, his response was, it's the woman you gave me. So if you notice, there's two degrees of separation here. He blames the woman that you gave me. So it's like I blame the woman and I blame God. You did this, right? It's awesome. Terrible. Um, and then Eve gets into the action and she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. At least she was honest. Showed some ownership here. 
And then in verse 14, God starts to respond. Starts to respond first to the serpent, then to the woman, then to the man. And um, when he gets to the serpent, you're going to be cursed. But I want to highlight verse 15 of what God says in response to their sin. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. It's going to bruise your head. You're going to bruise his heel, okay? This has been called, this text right here, I'm going to put a big, nasty theological word on, this, on, the, whoops, on the screen. Here we go. Uh, Proto-evangelium. You learned a new word today. Proto-evangelium. It's really a simple word. Proto means first, and evangelium means good news, gospel. First gospel. First good news. First gospel. Um, God is telling the serpent, the enemy, that one day, one day, one of Eve's offspring, although you will strike and bruise his heel, one day he will crush your head. What a statement this is. In other words, this is a reference to the gospel. The birth of Jesus, the work of Jesus who crushes the head of the enemy. Follow with me back to our text. Think about our text this morning. Paul connects this complementarian command back to the creation order of Genesis 1 and 2, verse 13. Then he takes us to the fall in Genesis 3, that's verse 14. And then here in verse 15, he takes us to this. The proto-evangelium of Genesis 3, 15, when Eve's offspring crushes the head of the enemy. Paul says, there it is, yet she will be saved through childbearing. In the Greek text, there's a definite article before the word childbearing. Um, in other words, it's not just a childbearing, childbearing in general. There's the word the in front of it, the childbirth, the childbearing, namely Jesus Christ. <laughs> Paul then adds, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, referencing the fact that you will be saved from sin through faith in Christ, the one who crushed that serpent's head. This is a reference to the work of Christ in our lives, continuing in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay, this is a difficult text. It is. Um, but I believe that this way of looking at it just brings the scripture together I believe it's clear and points us to Jesus. And so here's what I want to do. Um, I want to do my best right now to bring everything together. I told you this is part two of two. So I want to, I want to do the impossible. I want to boil everything down less than a minute. First Timothy 2, 8 through 15. I want to boil it all down. You ready? Let me get that off. Here we go. You can start, don't start a clock because I might go long and I don't want you to tell me. All right, Paul desires that for the glory of God and the good of the church, Paul desires that men should be men of prayer. Men should lead the congregation in prayer, not in anger, quarreling, conflicts, but men of prayer. Paul also desires that women should adorn themselves in what is modest and respectable and in good works. 
Then Paul says in the area of the teaching ministry of the church, women are to learn and not teach. In the area of spiritual authority in the church, women are to submit and not to exercise authority. And this command that Paul gives here is not tied to first century culture or our culture or any culture, but it's connected back to the creation order of Genesis 1 and 2, the fall of Genesis 3, and the proto-evangelium of Genesis 3.15. Lastly, again, this command for women in the church is not prohibiting all kinds of teaching and speaking and authority. It is, it is not a command to absolute silence as a woman in the church. It's a command specifically to the teaching ministry of the church and to the spiritual authority of the church as seen in the office of elder and deacon. In this, we're going to get this unpacked so much more as we step into the next chapter in in, uh, 1 Timothy 3, as Paul then talks directly to the men who serve and are called to be elders and deacons in the church. And so what we're seeing here is that God has this picture for us that takes us right back to the beginning, back to creation. And I want to start where we began. We believe and hold that Scripture teaches the sanctity of all human life, both male and female, as image bearers of God, equal in worth, value, and dignity. We believe also that God has a glorious and beautiful plan that is good and that God created men and women distinctly and complementary to each other in order to bring him glory and to promote human flourishing in both the church and the home. And there is such a beauty for this plan in the church. As men and women both come together and grow in Christ and use their gifts together and function in their roles together as God has planned and designed for us to do. God loves his church. And his plan for his church is good. So here's the question for the morning. As we walk through this tough text, will we hear his plan? Will we listen? Will we obey? Will we try to walk out this plan in joy? Or will we think we know better? We saw in Genesis what happens when we think we know better. When we reject God's design and plan leads to brokenness and sin. So will we listen? Will we obey? Will we submit ourselves to this? Will we submit ourselves to this and trust the Lord and his word that his plans are good? Okay, we're going to stop here. Um, I feel wound up. It's probably too much coffee. I don't know. Um, We're going to stop here because we're going to shift gears now. Um, Believe it or not, we're rolling into the Easter season. I'll talk about that here in a little bit, but we're going to pick up right here where we lift off as we come back from Easter. We're going to look at God's plan um, on how the church should be led and served. So for now, let's close together and let's respond. God, I thank you for your grace um, as we have walk through your word and and honestly have come to it with open hands that you would speak and that you would that you would direct us in your truth. I pray that as a church that we would trust your word more than we do ourselves, that we would trust your word more than we do our culture, that we would trust your word more than anything else. And that we would cling to it as our authority and our truth, knowing that it is the truth. 
pray that we would cling to the gospel, not thinking we know better, but Lord, to it knowing that you are good, that your plan for us is good, that we can trust you, to know that you're not a heavy-handed God who wants what's wants to make us suffer. No, you are a, a God that is loving. And that your plans for us, your law is good. And so we walk in it and we ask that you would light our path as we seek to live out your word. I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you would help us as we do that. Would you lead us and guide us in your truth for your glory? And we just respond now in all things that, Lord, we need you. We trust you and we need you and we thank you for what you're doing in our church and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.